Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. And I'm like, other than being in shape and cut and having the stamina to paddle far enough out to catch sailfish on a kayak, we're basically the same person, hon. Let's be, if you, this is what you're going to use. You might as well just grab like the towel bar out of your bathroom and tape a reel to it. You have not honed your micro fishing skills and therefore will not survive. It feels like they're trying to drag out the sound of the plastic slowly sliding from his nostril cavity. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the podcast that swears this is the year it's going to finally once and for all, perfectly organize all its tackle and keep it that way so it's not constantly buying hook swivels and soft plastics it knows it already has but can't find the night before a trip. How you like that one? I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte. <laughs> and I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. But huh. if I had one, it would be something along those lines about organizing tackle because that's something I know I'd do. Yeah, which honestly, is why it man, doesn't like, count. I, I reorganize my tackle at least twice a year. It's this weird, like Zen therapeutic thing for me. It's and it's especially true for fly boxes. There is something about a perfectly organized fly box that satisfies me and and brings me brings me some inner peace. I don't know why. I could not agree more. Like it, I, it, but it's so rare that mine are organized. Like I have to take a picture for social media because I'm like, <laughs> wow, that only happens once a year. Because I do. I reorganize in the spring. And like the streamer box, say we'll get all nice, nice before the first warm season streamer trip. But by now, like, and I mean like right now, now in winter, my shit is chaos. Yeah. But I'm one of those people, like I got to say, I know where everything is, at least in the general sense of like what region of the garage mm-hmm. the, like what, what the quadrant thing should be in. in. Yeah. What quadrant? It's in that quadrant. Yeah. Um, but the only time I go nuts is when I uh, jump into a curveball program, i.e. like. 
I get invited on a random musky trip, you know, because I don't do that often. So finding and organizing all the musky lures and leaders that I have scattered about would take effort. Uh, but no, it, it totally, it does feel good in the spring when everything is perfectly in place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to, to much of what you're saying. And I feel like, I feel like maybe I was misleading with my statement. So let me clarify. My shit is not organized. Not by any stretch of the imagination in any sort of functional sense. Like, unlike you, I can't usually find what I need among the precarious stacks of gear that are just lining my garage. I, I, I don't do well with that. What I'm talking about is the, the small and useless act of organizing and reorganizing individual boxes. There yeah, is something like the about the battle, like, not the war. It's like the yeah, battle, not the war. Like yeah. that I can, that, yeah. that feels like something I can handle. <laughs> and so like, I will, I'll take all the lures or flies out and just kind of reorganize according to some system that I decided makes more sense this year. Like uh, last year, I, I decided that all the various Prince nymphs that I have, like all the different kind of Prince nymphs that I have deserve their own box instead of just being thrown in. You have a lot in. of them. I've seen them. I've yeah. seen, you do have a lot of those. Yeah. 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 Again, guiding out here, you kind of have to, right? And they used to just be lumped in with all the small stone flies, but I was like, no, no, I've got enough. They deserve their own box. So I pulled them all out and reorganized everything. And will that help me find my Prince nymphs? or catch more fish? Absolutely not. I already knew where they were, but still I got a sense of, of joy out of it. Yeah. It was not useful, but it was <laughs> joyful. See, I don't own enough nymphs to organize them beyond the one standard size fly box that I have for nymphs. You know what I mean? Like if I broke them down further, we'd have like separate thimbles <laughs> or something like that of nymphs. Anyway, look, I, I, I've got no problem with New Year's resolutions, okay? Just to get back to the to the opening point there. But if I make one... I won't tell anybody about it. Like I have mm -hmm. a problem with public posting of resolutions. Like if you're going to do it, just shut up and do it for yourself. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe, and I could be a jerk here and get flack for this. I don't know, but I never got that. Like one week smoke free, you know, and 400 people are like, awesome job, bro. Keep it up. But then if any of those people see you burning a heater a week later outside the laundromat, now like they just know you have no follow through. So why make that public? You know, I'm sorry that I got I, I think that's the point. I think that's the point. I think like that's for people who need the social pressure to keep an agreement yeah. with themselves. And <laughs> sure. I great. I get, I don't, I don't, I'm with you, man. I don't, I don't want other people judging me for choices I made yeah. about my own self and health or whatever. And like all, this whole conversation just has me thinking about last episode when we were talking about how, how New Year's kind of gets you down. And I've mm -hmm. actually been mm -hmm. thinking about that. And, I, and and wondering why it doesn't bum me out quite as much. And and I think there are a couple answers. Like one, we have skiing out here, which makes the the winter yeah. nicer, and that might be part of it. But I, the the real answer, the thing that I've been thinking about, is is super deep and like mm. mind blowing. All mm. right, are you, are you ready for this? Do tell. Lay it on me. The days are getting longer. For as dumb and obvious as that sounds, because it does, I think I think we sometimes forget that the whole point of having winter holidays are to keep us from losing our minds during the darkest yep. days of the winter. And we made yep. it. Those we days did. are over. Yep. From now until June, every day is going to get just a little longer, 
just a little brighter, except for, you know, if you happen to be a listener in the Southern Hemisphere, I feel like, I feel like you guys get really <laughs> screwed on this whole deal. All the winter holidays happen in the middle of your summer, and then what do you have to get you through the dark, cold days of June? I, yeah, I never thought about that. International right. Day for the Fight Against Illegal, Unreported, and Unregulated Fishing? That's not a real thing. International it, Day it, of <laughs> Yoga? World Seafarer Day? All those are actual UN-recognized no June holidays, way. for the record. I looked it up. <laughs> anyway, uh, for those of us who live in the top half of the globe, congratulations. We survived the darkest days of the darkest year in recent memory. You know, amen to that. Yeah. Amen to that. I like I like where your head is at. Let's, let's turn the page on this some bitch. And, and uh, from the view out of my social media feed, it looks like many of you are way ahead of us, and I'm seeing lots of pics uh, you guys getting out and having fun. And many of those picks have involved big coats and, and little rods. But maybe some of you dreamers out there, you have the coat. Like you mm. figured out the coat part, but just need the uh, perfect little rod to begin your hardwater pursuits. Don't worry. Miles found a super sweet internet score for you in this week's sale bin. Well, why did you put the head in the paper? You don't know what I'm getting at. Well, you, you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. Today... In the sale bin, we find a, a very simple offering. Whoever posted this particular gem on uh, East Idaho Craigslist is not a person of many words. It's not someone that I would call uh, verbose. They, they are into the whole brevity thing. The title is simple. Ice fishing poles. That's all it says. There's a lot of things about this that are simple. It's very simple. <laughs> and, all right, look. I am not an expert on ice fishing. I enjoy ice fishing. I have some ice gear. I get out when I can. I've worked on some ice fishing shows. I like grilling brats, drinking beer, and fishing through holes in the ice as much as the next guy, but I do not claim like solid expertise there. Mm -hmm. It's just something I do. Yep. I'm right there with you. I love it, but I don't have all the gear. I mooch off no. somebody else. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, I, I feel like I know stuff, but I know enough to know that I'm not the guy who knows it all. When I look at this post, even I know that something doesn't seem right. Because while I might not be the most experienced ice angler on the planet, I do know the difference between an ice fishing rod and a fly fishing rod. And what I see pictured in the two photos on this post are just the bottom sections of two very, very crappy fly rods with two very, very crappy fly reels. All right, just for context, picture the bottom section of a four-piece fly rod, the really thick part. Now picture that with a couple of snake guides attached and a tip-top glued to the end of it. And you've got it. That is that is what is being sold. You can't zoom in enough on the photo. Like, even the tip guides, something looks weird about those. Like, they were like a repurposed something else that was glued on the end. I, I mean, who there's, there's a lot of creativity here, which I respect, but... The, I think I think there's there's one major problem, right? Because so as far as I understand it, ice rods have two sort of basic essential qualities. One is that they're short, so that you can jig over a hole without sitting six feet away from that hole. That yep. makes sense. And That's these <laughs> these fit that bill. They are short. You could do that. But the other thing that I expect from an ice rod is that it will be sensitive and have a pretty soft tip because you need to be able to detect a light strike and and set the hook and fight a fish up through the ice without breaking pretty light line. And that's where this, this particular innovation, I think falls short in that respect. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote. I believe that Gary Loomis once said, 
I can build you a rod that'll never break. You just won't want to fish with it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, let's be, if you, this is what you're going to use. You might as well just grab like the towel bar out of your bathroom and tape a reel <laughs> to it. Like that, that would essentially perform the same function as either. It wouldn't look as cool, but it would do the same thing. So, all right. I respect the repurposing here, right? I mean, you got some old fly rods sitting around. You don't know what to do with them. Like I got an idea. Maybe I could maybe I could turn it into a, an ice rod, but it didn't work. It clearly didn't work, and now someone's trying to sell that bad idea. Yeah, I got to say though, ten dollars for both, and that's I the mean, thing. If you needed a couple cheapo reels to knock around with, that's the deal of the century for sure, for sure. And and uh, honestly, not even that. At that price for ten bucks for both, I would consider buying this set just to see the looks on my friend's faces when I like rolled into the ice shack and pulled out these little rods and started jigging with them like that, that would be worth 10 bucks for me just to see that reaction. Like what the hell is that? Oh, it's my new ice rod. You like it? (laughs) So the part that gets me is like, what do you do with this when you're in 80 feet of water jigging for giant Lakers? Like you're just going to be standing there in front. Of, there's no quick release on a fly reel. So you're just going to no. be sending a jig just, like, ring, 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 for 45 minutes to get it down the depth. That's the major. Fl- I can forgive the half a fly rod, but like stick a couple spinning reels on there. You know, yeah. it's just, this is not functional. It didn't work. You're trying to you're trying to sell us your mistakes, which again, good on you, and at least it's cheap. So uh, I, that one, man, I got a lot of laughs out of that. Whoever posted that in East Idaho, thank you. If you come across any online fishing gems for sale, just let us know. Send us a link to bent at themeateater.com. You all have been doing a great job sending us those submissions, and we do appreciate them, and we look forward to the next ones that you come up with. So that's true. We have been getting a lot of good sale bin submissions lately. Several of you out there sent us a link to someone in Minnesota who's converting old beer taps into ice fishing rods. And while we didn't quite think that one had the legs for its own segment, we I, it definitely deserves an honorable mention. I would it's say. a good one. The, yeah. the only thing in that one that we can expand on, I particularly like the fact that they're priced not according to the quality of the rod blank or like the action or anything, but the price is according to how rare the beer tap is. Like the standard Bud Heavy tap goes for 60 bucks, but if you want the limited edition Bush Light corn cob tap, that's going to cost you a hundo. Yeah, I mean, I think the rods are all just broken off ends of ugly sticks. So like there's no... One's not carbon, you know, versus you know, whatever. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, you know, priorities, dude, priorities. Someone also sent me one that was a set of matching beer tap rods, and I believe all the taps had little Montreal Canadiens goalie masks on top. Mm. You know, it was a whole set, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was Molson. Um, <laughs> anyhow, whether people are out there using beer tap rods or normal rods, I, I have been seeing some stunner lake trout pictures lately, and I'm jealous, got to say, because lake trout are one of those fish that I, I rarely get to mess with them, but I love them and find them so fascinating. Uh, me too, definitely. I, I feel like a total dumbass when it comes to fishing for lake trout because I've only ever caught them by accident. I've never really, really? Tar- no, I've never targeted lake trout. But huh. I know, like, I, I know enough to know that the people who really get after them have it down to, to like a science. For oh, exa- yeah. th- there's that dude, uh, the the guy Grant Gully, who took Steve out uh-huh. on the, the last season of Doss Boat, and I've I've gotten to know Grant a little bit, and that guy, he's got the Laker game dialed. He just yeah. he's got it figured out. Yeah, for sure. No, dude, one of the coolest things I I ever did was I targeted them on the ice in Colorado 
with uh, legendary guide Bernie Keefe. Awesome dude. And he said in the beginning, uh, he's like, you want to catch a lot or you want to catch giants? Hmm. And I went with the latter. And in two days on the ice at Lake Grand Bay, we only hit five fish, but they were all over 40 inches on giant tuna-sized soft plastics. Really? And to fight fish like that on a tiny rod, like scream and drag, it, it, it was insane. It was insane. And, you know, but of course, seeing where I live, I also have a soft spot for Great Lakes fish too, because they're one of the few fisheries that we've been able to successfully recover after we've, you know, pretty much damn near wiped them out. So yep. um, I go up to the Great Lakes to fly fish for them, though I do understand most guys troll their lakers, but I hate trolling. Like yeah, that's that's definitely how Grant gets them. He's he's a yeah. trolling guy. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I'm not a trolling guy. Like if I never go on another billfish trip again, that'll that'll be fine with me. Um and in fact, in today's weekly word, Miles is gonna tell you what lake trout and billfish have in common. Webster's dictionary defines fish as this week's word is pelagic. No. Not the apparel brand voted most likely to instigate a bar fight in the Fort Lauderdale airport chilies. Pelagic comes from the ancient Greek word pelagikos, meaning sea. For the purposes of us anglers, the term usually references the pelagic zone and pelagic fish. The pelagic zone describes the part of a body of water outside the tidal influence of a shoreline and not near any sort of bottom structure. Pelagic fish are fish that live, at least part of the time, in that open water. We're talking tuna, billfish, mahi, mackerel, sharks, rays, lake trout. Yeah, freshwater fish can be pelagic too if they live in a big enough lake. As well as the massive schools of baitfish on which those species feed. Herring, whiting, anchovy, jellyfish, flying fish, sardines, smelt, and lots of others. Still other popular fish migrate between the pelagic and coastal zones like jacks, barracuda, redfish, and salmon. Point is, many of our favorite targets are at least partially pelagic. So if you liked fish, you might associate the term with abundance. Big fish, bloody decks, and full coolers. But the truth of the pelagic zone is very different. Pelagic actually describes the vast nothingness of open water. One of the most sterile and least hospitable places on the planet. Pelagic fish only make up 11% of the total fish species, though they live in the largest aquatic habitat on Earth. And here's the thing that a lot of us don't know. The pelagic zone is actually broken up into five different categories because open water isn't just broad, it's also usually deep. When us anglers talk about the pelagic zone, we're usually just referencing the surface layer, the epipelagic zone, which generally extends down about 650 feet depending on the clarity of the water. That's where the vast majority of sunlight, oxygen, energy, nutrients, and organisms are found, and not surprisingly, it's also where most of the fish live. But the pelagic zone goes a hell of a lot deeper than that. Below the epipelagic zone, you find the mesopelagic zone. Meso being the Greek word for middle. This area goes down to about 3,300 feet and is also known as the twilight zone. Because even though light does penetrate down that far, it's pretty diffuse. There's not enough sunlight at these depths for photosynthesis, so no plankton. Quite a few fish species do live down here, but they come up into shallow water to feed at night and hide in the depths during the day. Below this, you hit the bathypelagic zone, from the Greek word bathys, meaning deep. This extends from 3,300 feet down to 13,000 feet, and is also called the dark or midnight zone because, duh, no light reaches down here. This is the zone where those creepy deep water fish that create their own bioluminescence and have ultra-black light-absorbing skin live. 
Check out Fish News from a few weeks ago for more details on these strange but fascinating adaptations. This zone is pretty damn inhospitable, at least from a terrestrial perspective. Aside from being completely dark, it's also cold, low in oxygen, and high in salinity and pressure. Fish down here survive either by eating the remains of shallower water fish that die and sink, or by eating each other. Next, you hit the abyssopelagic zone from the Greek abyssos, meaning bottomless. This goes from 13,000 feet down to nearly 20,000 feet, and is where many of the deepest oceans bottom out, but in certain places, like the Mariana Trench. The ocean goes to an even deeper zone, the Hadopelagic zone, sometimes called the underworld, since Hado comes from Hades, the Greek god of the dead. We're talking about depths down to 36,000 feet, and honestly, we don't really know what lives in that zone because we can't get there. For me, like lots of other anglers, I think, the word pelagic conjures up images of early morning offshore runs, sinking the horizon, blow-ups in the bubble trail, trolling lines popping off outriggers, scrambling shouts of fish on, long sweaty stints in a fighting harness, prismatic flashes through blue water, and if you're lucky, a well-placed gaffer tag followed by high fives and cold beer. It's a word that we've appropriated to describe a particular kind of fishing. Big targets in open water. But the actual definition of pelagic doesn't fit that fantasy very well. It's a place of scarcity a massive watery desert that includes the least comfortable parts of this planet. I don't exactly know what all this says about fishing culture. Maybe it reflects our optimism, our confidence that we can find the haystack needles that are pelagic fish. Maybe it just shows that we don't actually understand the English language all that well. Or maybe it speaks to the kind of native intelligence common among our kind. I know a lot of anglers who barely pass biology class by sitting tall behind the smart kids, but can recite exactly which buoys fads, seamounts, and wrecks hold particular fish in any given conditions. The one thing you got wrong, I believe Hank Parker fished the Hadopelagic Zone uh, well over a dozen years ago with flying lures. Did he spider not? wire. Yeah, it was all about the spider wire. It was right when spider wire came out, and it was like, you want to hit the Hadopelagic Zone with, you know, spider wire. I think you're going to need lead core for that. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, but... Um, Going on what you said there, that's pretty much how I got through some of my science classes, dude. Like, I was I was never bold enough to blatantly cheat on the test, but I damn sure copied some homework. I also somehow ended up in AP Bio one year, and what I did in that situation was just simply fail. <laughs> I, I did not. <laughs> I intentionally did not sign up for AP Bio because I knew that if I had, I would have either failed or cheated. Uh, yeah, I don't know why I did it. I really don't. <laughs> that was a bad choice. <laughs> But unfortunately for us, uh, there are no notes to steal or shoulders to peek over because it's just the two of us going mano a mano in fish news. Fish news! That escalated quickly. All right. So before we kick in the news, I do have one fan shout out this week, um, and that's going to Tyler Berman, who emailed us. And the subject line of that email was, Dude snorted a Senko. And I followed the Reddit link uh, in this email to a video of a man getting a Senko removed from his nose by a doctor. Now you you watch this. A a doctor. A doctor. I'm, I'm using I'm using air quotes <laughs> in my voice in case you couldn't tell. A doctor. Okay. So all right, good. So you saw this too. You watched this too. Uh, and this isn't a news story we can officially use. It's not news. And I think the reason is because uh, as as you've just hinted at, I'm calling total bullshit 
on the whole video. I'm calling it 100% it's, it's fake. It's got to be bullshit, but I can't figure out why anyone would stage such an elaborate <laughs> fake. It's not like why? I I don't know. I don't and perhaps it's already been debunked. I don't know how long it's been around. Um, but I, I don't think the doctor's real or anything because this dweeb is acting like he has a length of barbed wire jammed up his nose and they remove this Senko painfully slowly. Okay. With, with, with tweezers. Here's a bit of audio. Oh man. Oh, sorry. It's just so, it just feels so weird. Sorry. Can you give me that light please? Yeah. And then, and then later, a little bit later, here's this. Okay, you're doing good. You're doing good. Okay. And I don't know if you read the comments, man, but I, the, most of them were saying what I was thinking, which was just pull it out. Yeah. Why are yeah, we extracting just, this? Why is this going one <laughs> centimeter at a time? Like you're, it, it, it feels like one of those, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but those, is it ASMR videos? The weird like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It feels like they're trying to drag out the sound of the plastic slowly <laughs> sliding from his nostril cavity. Like, I yeah. don't get it. First of all, Senkos are lubricated out of the package, man. Like, if I had a choice between a, a, a Senko or like a big pen jammed up my snooter, I'd take the Senko every time. Every you know? time. Um, and also, like, when it finally wiggles out, it's oddly void of boogers. So I'm calling, I'm calling this fake. Right, but I, Tyler, uh, yeah, <laughs> I do. We appreciate you but sending I, I it, man. It's, I'm going to say one more thing. But you, if you watch this video, like it is very elaborately staged. There's like a very doctor seeming actor in a coat and a lot. Like they spent some time and some effort and some resources making this, and I cannot understand why. So that's yeah. that's what. Yeah, I, and, and not that I expect many people to to like just know this off the top of their head, but the guy who's getting it pulled out of his nose looks like the lead singer of Mud Honey. He does. Yeah, fun, I hadn't thought of that. But you're absolutely right. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So that's my fan shout out. Tyler, thank you. I mean, I've got my little early one, and I'm not going to shout anybody out by name on this one, and it'll make sense in a second, but it, it does right. connect to that in sort of the, the shape of the bait. A lot of people lately have reached out to us with links to lures in the shape of penises. <laughs> and, and I got to admit that I was, I was totally ignorant of this, like, propensity that anglers seem to have for casting out phallic lures and trying to get fish to eat them. I had, I had no idea that was a thing, man. We've gotten, we've gotten links to crank baits, stick baits, soft plastics, oh, but, all but I, but I, to but look I know like where male you're going. I know where you're going though here. So we've gotten a lot of links to ones that are pre-made for sale. Are you going to the gentleman that made his own? <laughs> I, I'm not calling him out, but nope, yes, that nope. is one of the ones. Yeah. That is one of the ones that yeah, I'm not going to... He sent us an email. He said, I got a 3D printer for Christmas and I made this top water and it's a, it's a penis and nuts. And like in my head, I'm like, why, why did you make that? And furthermore, why why did, why did you send that? Dude, that's where I'm going. Where I'm going is (laughs) I don't get it. Like, is this some weird desire to debase the fish? Is it like some kind of like dominance thing? I, I don't, I don't know. I I just don't, don't, I don't get it. I, I believe it's all. I don't believe anybody's using those wiener lures. It's just like it, it's like a joke you buy for your friend, but it was funny thirty years ago. Like these are not new. Like you've been able no, to buy booby and wiener lures forever. You just had to do it, you know, through mail order instead of on Facebook. But it's like the Spencer's gifts of the fishing world. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty much. So I think what okay. we're both saying is we we love seeing weird stuff from you guys, but you can stop with the dick lures. <laughs> 
Like yeah. we're not doing a sale bin on the dick lures. Nope. We're not sharing your homemade dick lures on Instagram, <laughs> which I don't know why you'd want us to do that anyway. You know, anyway. Oh, anyway, I just, I had to, that one, like they keep coming. So I felt like they had to be addressed. But and, and, but yeah, let's, let's move on to some fish news and maybe something of a little more substance. Here. Okay. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I get to kick off this week uh, as a reminder, as always, this is a competition. Miles and I don't know what stories the other guys bring to the table. And uh, Madman Audio Engineer Phil will declare a news victor at the end. And I'm going to start off today with a nod to a buddy of mine, Jason Nark, who's a journalist of the highest caliber, exquisite writer. Um, and I met Jason two summers ago. He was working on a piece about snakeheads on the Delaware River watershed for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And uh, he tagged along with me on a snake hunt. Now, this is a caveat that has nothing to do with the story. I just, I just have to tell it, right? I just have to bring it up. At the time I met Jason, he was a very clean-cut, well-pressed man. And then last summer, last summer, I'm snakehead fishing on the side of the road in South Jersey. And up pulls this pickup with a kayak stashed in the back. And out pops a long-haired, very unshaven Jason wearing like a full-brim boonie hat. And like he's all sweaty. And it turned out he became so snakehead obsessed, he now spends his summers just mucking around the swamps of South Jersey. And another I admire life ruined. I, another, another life, life ruined, ruined by Joe Cermelli. I, but, but tell you what, Jason is still writing and writing very well. And he recently had a story in the New York Times uh, headline, The Problem with Problem sharks okay and i'm going to summarize a lot of this because it's a long one right but here's the gist we all know i think we all know what shark culls are okay shark bites a swimmer causes mass hysteria and in the past even here in the u.s that would lead to the killing of a bunch of sharks in the area of the attack right with the idea being you're you're getting rid of the problem one okay now while these full-on bloodbaths don't happen like they used to in other countries particularly south africa and australia um, they do still use nets and baited hooks time to time. They're still deployed along some beaches where swimmers uh, and large numbers of sharks often mingle. So there's a doctor, Dr. Eric Clua, C-L-U-A. It's French. I don't know how to pronounce. Do you know how to pronounce I'm, Clua? Nope, I'm going to try. Clua. We're just going to call him Dr. Clua, okay? Um, and he's a marine biologist based in Paris, and he says he's figured out how we can get away from shark calls, which, as the story says, is like executing everyone in a police lineup in order to ensure justice was dispensed on the guilty party. Now, I'm going to quote from Jason's story here. Fascinating. Dr. Clua said he has found a way to make precision strikes on sharks that have attacked people through a form of DNA profiling he calls bite printing. And he believes it's usually just solo, quote, problem sharks that attack humans repeatedly, analogizing them to terrestrial predators that have been documented behaving the same way. Instead of culling every bear, tiger, or lion when only one has serially attacked people, wildlife managers on land usually focus their ire on the culprit. Dr. Clewis said that problem sharks could be dispatched the same way. And once a database of these bite prints is built, DNA could be collected from the wounds of people who were bitten by sharks and matched to a known shark. The offending shark would then need to be found and killed. Okay. Okay. With me so far. I'm, I'm with you. I, I have a couple questions, but, I, but I'm going to let yeah, you finish yeah, in case yeah, you yeah, answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many other people in the science field um, have poo-pooed this idea. And I don't necessarily mean the bite printing part, right? It seems most agree that collecting DNA 
uh, you know, via bite print could work, right? And uh, Klua is is perfecting the technique using uh, tiger sharks in French Polynesia. And uh, here's a quote. He says, I'll let them bite a pig leg or something else with flesh, muscle, and bone. And that's what he's using to perfect this DNA collection from a bite wound. Uh, but many people uh, are saying, first of all, the idea of a rogue Jaws-like problem shark has been long debunked. Like, there's really no science that that proves that's a real thing. Klua is saying, on the other hand, his research and data collection will prove the opposite, that problem sharks do exist. Um, but, I mean, here's where we get our fishy tie-in, right? What, 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 what this guy fails to address in this, even though other sources who aren't even anglers have addressed it very loudly in the piece is, Okay, like let's say this this data collection proves there's a problem shark that's bitten three people. How do you now single it out and target it? That's just that that's, was that was my question. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm wondering. Like, how do you know he, which one it is from the he DNA? Does, he, he doesn't address that at all, right? And and that's just not how fishing works. So, if I'm understanding this right, like theoretically, a great white could bite someone in say Cape Cod, and by the time you get the the data back. Assuming that there's a pool of, pool of data, right? Like I, I imagine that shark would have had to have bitten other people, at least two people, right? At least two people for for you know proper data to be collected, and then you take the time to determine, oh yeah, that's the problem shark. It could be 120 miles off Jersey in 500 feet of water. Like you can't yeah. just take a boat out in the ocean and say, I want that one. So in in my opinion, this is just a case of, of hardcore science not jiving with simple common sense. Like in my head, it's it like teeters on ridiculous. It's like saying, you know, new study finds serial killers drive cars. Well, yeah, but like that doesn't doesn't help us find them. So I I, I tend to give researchers the benefit of the doubt in these things. Not always right, but I, I they're they're yeah. generally pretty like smart folks who understand complex problem solving. So right. I, 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 I would love to be able to ask this guy, like, what's your, what's your solution, man? Like, okay, you've got the DNA of the a problem shark. How do you, there, there are 500 sharks in this area. How do you tell which one is the one without killing all of them or sampling? Well, all? Like, I don't get it. No, no, you're right. But even if you could tell which one, how do you target that shark in a pack of, I, yeah. I just don't see I, I I don't see how that would ever work. I don't I don't doubt that hypothetically that database could be created, but in my opinion, it would take a damn long time. Like we like we were saying, in order to identify one of those sharks, wouldn't it have to bite multiple people and you'd have yeah. to have the DNA from multiple people? I mean, you could what it would do. Here's what I'll say. It would prove or disprove the idea of problem sharks. And so Maybe. like if that's what we're going for here, You'd say like, oh, this this person and this person and this person were all bit. It's the same shark. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, but even that, man, I don't know. I could counter argue that and say that like if you look at the the New Jersey attacks from close to shore, the book I did on Philistines mm -hmm. here, there's a million theories as to why those sharks were there doing that. And in a lot of cases, they point to environmental things. It's not like those fish were blood hungry for humans. They were where they weren't supposed to be or got pushed there because of weather factors or, you know, they ran out of a food source here. Like what, what, what is a problem shark? Okay. But regardless of the reason why they get there, you could say the th same thing about bears in that. And we, we do have problem bears. There are usually environmental factors that drive a bear to seek an alternate food source that maybe become human based, whether it's human food or, or people. Yeah. But once that's happened, then that bear is a problem. I see, and it yeah. will continue to seek out that food source. 
And so right. that's where I would say it could be valuable. Okay. All right. Well. I still don't know how you find the shark. <laughs> all, all you do is like, yep, they're a problem. I, I, I don't I think we'd have to figure something else out so, off of that. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot more work to be done here, you know. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot more and, work to be done. And and on the kind of on the subject of areas of fisheries management where we have a lot of work to do, uh, I'm going to pivot from the, the salt to the fresh here. And, you know, in, in previous fish news segments, we've talked quite a lot about the, the detrimental impacts of fertilizer, specifically mm-hmm. phosphorus on, on water quality, right? And, and just a little quick update, nutrients from fertilizer used in lawns, golf courses, and agriculture get into waterways and then concentrate in lakes and then cause algae blooms, which lead to all kinds of problems, right? Like oxygen depletion, cyanobacteria. These, these are things we've talked about. And this yeah. is a major and growing problem in fisheries across the globe, right? You think about the massive red tides and fish kills in Florida or the, the blue-green algae warnings that seem to be just growing in scope and scale every summer all over the place. So in light of all that, here's my question on this story. Why is a ranch on Colorado's Blue River requesting permits to intentionally add phosphorus to the river? And why do some conservation groups and environmental advocates support the idea? All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little backstory here to, to so we can put this you, together. Was I sp- I'm not supposed to answer yet? Am no, I? you're not supposed no, to answer. Okay. I'm just I'm just set, that was hypothetical, rhetorical. All right, all right, um, not in a hypothetical, rhetorical. All right, first, a little backstory. The Blue River cuts through the mountains of central Colorado on the west side of the Continental Divide. In the 1960s, as Colorado's front range population began to expand, city planners realized that they didn't have enough water to support the number of people they were hoping to attract into these metropolitan areas east of the divide. We're talking about Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, Fort Collins. So they devised massive pipeline projects to divert water through the mountains from the wetter western side to the drier east side where all the people want to live because it's warm and sunny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The backstory on these water diversion projects is like fascinating in and of itself. It's worthy of its own segment, but, but I, I ain't got time for all that right now. I just need to give you the basics. What's important here is that the blue is one of the rivers that gets diverted, moving water from the Dillon Reservoir over to the South Platte River and, and, and therefore Denver. Dillon Reservoir sits above a, a, a 231-foot-high bottom-release dam, meaning that the water flowing out of that dam into the Blue River below comes from the lower reaches of the water column. So it, it remains at a, a a relatively constant temperature that's optimal for trout, never getting too hot in the summer or too cold in the winter. Just about every famous trout fishery in the U.S. sits below a bottom-release dam for exactly that reason. And and the blue has long been a famous trout fishery. It's, it's known for producing just massive rainbows and, and, and big browns too. Part of the reason that fishery has remained so healthy is that in the 1980s, as the mountain towns grew in the upper Blue River Basin, Water quality managers enacted very strict regulations on wastewater discharge, which kept levels of pollutants, including phosphorus, pretty low. For several decades, the Blue was arguably one of the best trophy trout rivers in Colorado and and the country, really. Guides and outfitters proliferated and profited, and private ranches were bought up along the banks, creating exclusive access for their owners and clientele. One of those ranches, Blue Valley Ranch, owns a stretch so noted for its big fish that local anglers refer to it as Jurassic Park. 
Okay, so now fast forward to 2016. Colorado Parks and Wildlife stripped a 19-mile stretch of the blue, which includes the, the Jurassic Park section, of its gold medal status because they found that the size and number of trout in the river had significantly declined. Biologists explained that the water lacked nutrients. So basically, many of the nutrients flowing into the system were getting trapped in Dillon Reservoir and not making their way through the dam. Low nutrients means few aquatic plants, which means low numbers of aquatic insects, which means sure. no, yeah. no food for trout. Yeah. So this year, Blue Valley Ranch, a 25,000-acre swath of land, which, again, houses that Jurassic Park section, wants to pilot a program that would intentionally add nearly 2,000 gallons of phosphorus to the river annually in order to boost nutrient levels and, hopefully, fish size and populations. Now, this could sound like a, an evil plot by a rich landowner to improve the fishing on his private stretch of river at the expense of the ecosystem, but it's, it's not actually that simple. Paul Tudor Jones II, who owns the ranch, the dude, he's actually proven himself to be like a pretty good steward of the mm -hmm. land and the water and mm -hmm. the wildlife. He's, he spent a lot of his money uh, trying to improve habitat. He, he, he built these, uh, these, these wildlife corridors to get through the busy highway near there so yeah. that there were less issues. Uh, he set up a foundation that works to protect the, the mangroves in Florida, and he's, just, he's done a ton of stream habitat restoration on the blue, which not only benefits him, but all the anglers that fish that river. So various local conservation groups and water planning organizations are backing this project. That includes Trout Unlimited, the Blue River Watershed Group, and the Colorado Basin uh, Roundtable. And they're hoping that this has the potential to rehabilitate the section of the river. But what I want like, what does rehabilitation really mean here? Yeah. We're talking about an artificial system that's been dammed and redirected and planted with completely non-native fish that grow to disproportionately large sizes. Sarah Marshall, an eco-hydrologist with the Colorado Natural Heritage Program at Colorado State University, she sees value in the Blue Valley Ranch's experiment, but said further tinkering with the river to restore it could have risks. She told the Aspen Times, the proposed study sounds like a band-aid rather than fixing the underlying causes of degraded stream habitat. And I got to say, man, I'm, as, as I so often am, I'm torn on this one. Uh, I fished the blue and it's, it's an incredible fishery. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. And, and I hate to see a section of stream lose its fish, particularly one that's as good as that one. But I'm also not totally comfortable with intentionally adding phosphorus to a river when we're working so hard to limit the nutrient load in, in so many of our waters, right? It might help that 20 mile stretch that's lacking nutrients, but then just add to the problem downstream, right? It seems like one of those situations yeah. where we've completely screwed up a natural system and we're just going to keep doing more and more tinkering, thinking that like screwing it up further will fix what we've already done. But projects like that don't really have a great track record. So I... <laughs> It's a tough one, man. Yeah, man. And it's, it's a hard one for me to speak to because I, I certainly know the blue. I've never fished it. I mean, I'm not I'm not that in tune with that particular river, but you can't help but see both sides of it. I mean, without knowing what the vegetation in there looked like, I mean, that that is important. And, and forget all the, the pollution and conservation. I mean, you get a high water year here on the river and then the grass doesn't grow. The fishing sucks in certain yep. spots. Like, you, like you, you do need that. And- Sometimes I also think that you can overprotect something because, I mean, if you look at something like this that was so special in Blue Ribbon, how many great trout streams out there are not protected 
nearly as much as this one is. I mean, especially like I look at Pennsylvania. There's a lot of great trout streams in Pennsylvania that, I mean, they're not coddled the way some of these Western fisheries are. There's all kinds of shit dumping into them and they still fish and they have big fish in them. And so I'm not saying you can't do anything, but I mean, I don't have a firm answer on that either because I see the value both ways. But I mean, this wasn't, this was not a trophy trout stream initially. Right. right. Originally, if we're talking was, about what it yeah, used it was, to be, it was a, yeah. you know, it, it used to be probably a pretty good cutthroat, cutthroat stream, but no one really knows because there was so much mining activity in that area in the 1800s. It basically right. killed everything off. Right. And then in the 1960s, they built this dam to, to send water yeah. over to Denver, no. which created this bottom release fishery that grew these massive trout. And for 40 years, it was great. And then they ran out of nutrients. It's not great anymore. So I mean, what are we fixing? What are we trying to restore? Yeah, you're you're fixing something that was manufactured from 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 the get go, right? Really, essentially. And and I get it. Like, I love big trout streams too. I love bottom release dams. I love tailwaters. They're some of my favorite places to fish. But is it worth potentially adding more phosphorus load to the greater Colorado River system that could mess right. things up downstream just to have that one piece go back to what it was for a very short period of time? The, the correct the correct answer to that is probably not. I mean, probably not. But I mean, dude, you know how anglers are, man. It's like people care most about what where they're fishing and how it affects what they want to do. And I mean, that's that's a problem with so many conservation issues is we're worried yep. about right here and now and not fifty miles from here. I mean, yep. it happens all the time. And and look, I get it. a lot of people make their living guiding that river, and I'm not trying to say that their needs aren't serious or significant. I'm really sure. not. I just it's it's a hard one. It's complicated. It's it's a very hard one. It's very, and I don't I don't think we'll we'll necessarily resolve it here, um, but by all means, email us, weigh in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth 
There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. And how do I segue this? Well, hopefully it'll get back to uh, a status of, of some serious meat-eating trout, gigantic meat-eaters, uh, which is a, that's a, that's a shit segue. But I, listen, I'm tra- you know. It, I, I just want to see where it goes now. Like, you're, you're really building well, it up. Well, here's, here's where it's going to go, because this, this is a fun one that's ironically going to pair perfectly with this week's closing and the line segment. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but you'll know where that's going as soon as I, I read this headline here from Louisiana Sportsman. Two catfish eat family of ducks. <laughs> okay. So nice. this pair this pair of blue cats was caught by angler Nick Price near Homa, and the fish weighed 19 and a half and 20.2 pounds. So definitely respectable blue cats, right? But not like super tanker monsters either. And according to the story, Nick noticed the guts on these cats were abnormally distended. So after filleting, he slit open the stomachs and outpoured a whole family of ducks. Wow. Okay. And uh, Nick says one cat was full of just babies. The other one had one baby and the mama duck. So like the the full grown duck. Right. These can't be mallards. That's all I'm going to say. There's no way these are. These have got to be a smaller duck. Sorry. Anyway, I, I'm going to throw a shot up on the uh, on our, our weekly bent insta story so you guys can see it. They're they're pretty. You could tell they're ducks. They're kind of decomposed. And I'm not a, I'm not a bird person. I don't know what they are. But one is definitely a full grown duck. Okay. Wow. Um, and because that's what I thought. Like babies, I understand, but the mama duck. That's impressive, especially considering these were not 40, 50 pound blue cats. Like 20 is yeah. good, but it's not, it's not insane. No. So uh, Nick, Nick reckons the fish were paired up and swimming around together when they happen upon the Ducksworth family here. And um, he says he showed this, the pictures of, of the stomach contents to his dad and uncle, and they've both been catfishing this area for 50 years and uh, said they'd never seen anything like that. Now, remember that part right there as you venture into the end of the line segment. 50 years, the local cat crew had never seen anything like this. That'll be important again later. Uh, But Nick says he did do some research and found some video of catfish taking shots at ducks and other birds, which I've seen them. Wells catfish over in Europe in particular, right? Um, You know, but I don't don't think Nick's going to start baiting with, with duck parts. He did, however, add, and I'm quoting here, I have an unusual catfish bait. It only catches big catfish. It won't catch a lot but you catch bigger ones with more meat than five small ones. His secret, speckled trout belly. Hmm. Now, he says it's prime catfish bait. They love it. I've been using it here for at least three years. My biggest catch has been about 38 pounds. Nick, like, what? Just ride on the ducks, man. Like, why are you going to give your shit away like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know we're going to, there's a chance that we're going to tell it to everybody. But, yeah. you know. I mean, we kind of just Thanks. did. So, um, 
I just thought that was an interesting little one. You know, the, the, the birds pop up now and again, the, the mice and the voles and the things and the trout stomachs. But uh, I, I don't ever recall seeing a whole family of ducks in blue cat stomachs before. Mm. No, I haven't. I've, I don't actually, I've never caught a blue cat, so I, I can't speak to it, but no. Oh, really? Uh, oh, well, no, I've never caught a blue. I know that I've caught lots of other cats, but I've never caught a blue. Um, I sort of, for my, my second story today, I also went a little bit more like lighthearted and fun. It's okay. Not, not quite so sciencey and serious, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, but, but like you, you know, you, you went. You went salt into fresh, and I went fresh, and now into salt. So we're getting a whole smattering of everything. Great. And and I'll admit, my first story was really long, so the second one's going to be pretty short. I got I got to close with the best headline, and that's purely why I picked the story. The best headline I found all week: fish sex organs boosted under high CO two. And this mm. one came from fizz.org, mm. one of those science journalism websites that I, I enjoy just like hanging around on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to file this in the very, very slim category of benefits of climate change. <laughs> <laughs> so a new study out of the University of Adelaide found that one particular species of reef fish looks like it may actually uh, benefit from ocean acidification you know, that, that, that's happening right now as a result of increased CO2 in the atmosphere. The common triple fin, or Forsterigion lapillum, I know I blew that, uh, mm. is a shallow water species found off the coast of New Zealand. When exposed to increased levels of oceanic acidity, these fish produce more sperm and eggs and take better care of their fertilized ova. The research team compared the triple fin found in areas of underwater volcanic seeps that naturally have high levels of carbon dioxide with fish found outside those areas. And they discovered that those fish experienced no negative effects from acidification and significant increase in gonad production. The males in the area of of high acid ate and foraged more, and the females devoted more of their energy to ovarian production. The, the researchers also found that the males spent more time and energy guarding the fertilized eggs, which might lead to better recruitment. So there, there's the good news in all this. The bad news is that we're talking about tide pool fish that grow to a whopping eight centimeters. So <laughs> like, I don't think you're going to look for the triple fin to take the place of your favorite sport fish, which are not going to fare so well from acidified oceans. But hey, something's going to do all right. I don't even know what to say about that. I was thinking that maybe they were like a different version of the triple tail. I know. You know I, I know. Mean? I was so too. I, I was that's, too. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, like a, tri- no, no. We were talking about tiny little tide pool fish that, uh, that will do great when everything else dies. Here, here's what I'll say about that. I, I once did an interview with a very smart gentleman who wrote a very great book about micro fishing. And I was like, what is all this about? And, and, and it, it was a very interesting conversation. But one of the things that he said is like, you know, micro fishermen might be laughing all the way to the bank because at some point, like that might be what's left. And then you have not honed your micro fishing skills and therefore will not survive. So don't joke. You never know. These, these, hey, these little you know what? F- you don't. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to be fishing for in 30 years or what's going to gonna be the thing that, that makes me most excited. It might be an, a whopper. I got an eight centimeter, bro. Yeah, but this at the same time, man. huge. Like, like when are we, we going to get like the, like the, you know, some climate change thing produces 
10 pound bluegills. You know, like we've been hearing about that our whole life, like the radioactive, like we're going to get some of that. You know, you know, well, I'll, I'll, at least we know at least one fish seems like he's going to benefit from it. So maybe others will too. Who knows? We'll, 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 we'll all find out soon enough. <laughs> we can only hope either we clean up the whole climate and the whole thing, <laughs> or we just hope for like, you know, stupid radioactive fish. Uh, Phil's got a lot to take in here. We got, um, sexual fish organs, duck, duck sauce, uh, <laughs> catfish with duck sauce. Catfish, yeah, miracle grow. Sprinkle a little miracle grow in your favorite trout stream uh, and shark hunting. Phil, uh, let us know what you're thinking, man. We'll see which way uh, you sway this week. And as soon as we're done hearing from you, it's on to awkward moments in angling. Quack, quack. Joe Cermelli, you are the winner this week. <laughs> also, I just wanted to ask you guys um, for a favor for a friend of mine. Um, if you guys come across any news stories about how increased CO2 levels can improve the performance of human sex organs or anything, it doesn't have to be CO2, go ahead and pass those stories along to me and I'll forward them on to my friend for, you know, no reason. Thanks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. So I want to say I feel bad about what we're about to do here, but I don't. No, you don't. I can't. I can't feel bad because you guys send us shots to trash. Like you guys opt into this. You put the shit talk ball squarely in our court, and you say things like, "Here's a picture. Destroy me." So I can't. I can't feel too bad because those are the emails that we get. No guilt. No guilt at all. Exactly. Right. But I'm going to enjoy this one a little more than usual because um, today's awkward moment, awkward photo is from a friend of mine. And today we're going to deconstruct a photo of this pal or maybe former pal, Kevin Hughes. And when he sent this shot, he didn't even provide a backstory. He was basically like, hey, you said you were looking for awkward shots. Here you go. That's what I got from Kevin. Yeah. And I I don't know Kevin at all, but I, I feel zero issue with with trashing this one because awkward awkward it is yeah again i don't know this guy but i'm gonna go ahead and say that kevin is either just incredibly self-confident like just just one of those people who's automatically comfortable in their skin no matter how they look or totally unaware of what he was getting into when he offered up the shot well i i can tell you that he's totally confident now because a quick bit of backstory on kev I've known him for years, and he lives down in Miami, and you can find him on the Instagram at Small Craft Advisory Fishing, which is a very clever name considering his shtick is kayak fishing, and he produces all kinds of cool videos and social media and even guides a bit. But when I say kayak fishing, I mean like giant tarpon and snook and tuna and all kinds of macho stuff. Like, he gets after it. Kevin's not at the golf course pond, you know what I mean? And while I don't have time to explain why... I also believe he's one of the luckiest anglers on the planet. I have joked with with mutual friends more than once that he has a horseshoe stuck up his ass. So good for him. He's lucky. Kevin is also a gorgeous man. Like, no kidding. Over the years, my own wife has been like, OMG, Kevin Hughes is so hot. And I'm like, <laughs> that other hurts. than being- That stings. Uh, yeah. This is not like, like a, a famous celebrity. <laughs> it's a buddy. And I'm like, other than being in shape and cut and having the stamina to paddle- far enough out to catch sailfish on a kayak, we're basically the same person, hon. You know? Oh, yeah, I'm sure she agrees with that. You guys. Uh, other, yeah, no, other than other than his, like, seemingly chiseled physique, his uh, his southern location, 
and his badass jackalope tattoo. You guys are basically <laughs> <Truth>. twins. <laughs> we are. Uh, but then Kevin had to go send us this photo of him in April 2001 standing on the shore of a Colorado lake. And I don't even know where to begin, but I guess I'll start here. 14-year-old Kevin was not so cut, <laughs> not at all. And let's just say he was likely familiar with Oxy or Stridex pads, okay? <laughs> and look, I was too. I'm not making fun of that. I'm just, we're, we're stating facts about the photo, yep. pointing things out, and I, I felt the need to go there. No, so. that's, that's I, th- <laughs> I think it's earned. And, and I also feel like I got to say, I was an Oxy guy myself. And for the youngins out there who grew up in the big pharma generation, we're talking about astringent acne pads, all right? Not hillbilly <laughs> heroin. But I'm not, I'm not one to pick on a little kid's pimples. I'd consider that a low blow. I will reserve my ridicule for the clothes that uh, his mom probably bought for him. And young Kevin's mom seems like she had good taste because his attire is, what's, what's, what's the adjective? <laughs> stunning. It's stunning. <laughs> oh, I'm dying to get into that shirt, but I will, I will start at the top. I will hold back. Kevin is wearing a white Abercrombie visor which leads me to believe that he was either the last preppy kid still wearing Abercrombie in 2001, or he was really into Eminem. And I hope it was the latter. Like, I hope (laughs) that when he wasn't fishing, he was just watching eight mile on repeat and daydreaming about himself winning rap battles. I'm going to say strong chance there were slim shady posters in his room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. You mentioned the shirt, the shirt sort of backs that up. Okay. This shirt, it's loose, flowy, and breathable, button up like a Hawaiian shirt, but it's got this crazy Asian print happening, right? And I mean, it's all over the place. It's a white shirt, but it's just slathered with Chinese letters and dragons, just all different color dragons, man, like randomized all over the shirt. I'm and pretty I sure, I'm, I, hate to, I hate to interrupt you, but I'm pretty sure that when I saw Wu-Tang play in Hawaii, one of them was wearing that shirt. Oh, you saw Wu-Tang? Yeah, I did. Oh, man. All right, we can't get off on that now, but there you go. So that's that's actually, you just made the shirt cooler and kind of ruined the whole make fun of the thing. But anyway, um, I I look at it and I'm like, well, this is kind of foreshadowing, right? Because I I was like, it's it's kind of kind of a little bit Scarface, and Kevin did end up moving to Miami. You know what I mean? So it's like yep. a little picture of the future, like what he's going to rock and you know where he lives. Um, but I like, can't you see him at the mall with his friends falling in love with that shirt? Like, you know, while there were no adults there, like I bought, you know, weird clothes and stuff you know, when I was at the mall with my friends and my dad, you know, he had a pair of Jenkos. My dad would be like, what the hell are you wearing? Bell bottoms? You know, it happened all the time. I I mean, yes, I can relate to that, but the, the shirt does not flag that way for me. It just okay. like, I, I think we have different perspectives on that shirt. The, okay. the, the Asian themed Hawaiian shirt just doesn't throw me at all. I can picture... I can actually picture some, I think some of my high school teachers wore that shirt in the late 90s, if I'm being honest. And I would probably still rock that shirt to this day. I, I could see you wearing, I, I, you know what? Damn it, I could see you wearing that shirt. Yeah, I could too. To a Christmas party or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or, yeah. <laughs> or just out fishing on a summer day. It could happen. Uh, I will admit that the shirt feels a little out of place, like mm. with the backdrop of the Colorado high mountain lake. So, yeah, I see. I see how it's a little out of place there, but I can't throw too much shade because I could see myself doing that. But let's let's move off the shirt. Let's move on to the fish. Yes, Kevin's holding a small rainbow trout, and it's not like when I say small, we're not talking like four inches of fury small. It's but it's also <laughs> not. It's not what I would put into the hog category. No, right? Uh, let's just let's call it a twelve incher. 
It's a perfectly respectable yep. fish for a 14-year-old kid to get excited about. He could have used maybe a little guidance on the on the hold, like maybe loosen up the, uh, the yep. full hand around the yep. gill's death grip. But again, I've seen worse. It's not the worst I've seen. Yeah, see, we, we may disagree here, but like what, what strikes me is the look on his face, right? A face, by the way, that's wearing glasses that I don't recall being in style, okay? Just they're these <laughs> no. thin, gold-framed, oblong, not sunglasses. These are like glasses, glasses that I just, I don't feel match his age. It's like he's trying to find his own style with, with the ensemble, with the clothing, but like these are the glasses like his mom bought him six years earlier that he's still wearing, okay? But anyway... I don't think the ensemble belongs in this fishy setting, and his face to me looks as though someone else caught the trout and handed it to him and said, can you hold my trout for a sec, dude? And then like before he could respond and say, I don't know how to hold a fish, someone quickly snapped his photo. Snap. That's what I see. I, I get that. The thing that sticks out for me on that one is just his apparent total lack of enthusiasm, <laughs> right? And it doesn't come off like it doesn't come off like the I'm too cool to look excited aloof teenager thing, which I would mm-hmm. understand for a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like that. It feels yep. strangely more wholesome. Like if I were to caption this photo, it would say something like, hey, this fishing stuff is pretty neat. Like that's, <laughs> would that's you what say, I would you say it like the, Would you say it like the moose from Wally World? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I would, folks. actually, yeah. yeah. Oh, this fish is a pretty neat one. But <laughs> my big takeaway from the photo is that I'm looking at someone who has no business being as comfortable and confident in his body as he seems to be. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I don't know how he can have that look of confidence and be the 14-year-old kid that he is. And it seems like, man, I got to see, I got to say, it seems like it's all worked out for him because you say Kevin oh, yeah. has sprouted into an absolute angling badass he has and my my final point here is that this picture should provide hope to all the mid puberty kids out there (laughs) stuck somewhere between wanting to be kvd and i don't know what's cool post balone depending on (laughs) on and and they're like they're like trying to make the decision based on what they think is going to get them uh get them more attention from the the people that they're interested in romantically (laughs) but here's a hit for all of you it's always the musician and never the fisherman always just plain simple you'll mack it so much more being a drummer in a deaf leopard cover band you know especially considering you have two arms (laughs) than like winning the bass master classic it's okay, true. but listen, there there is a video of Kevin out there paddling under 10 docks with a 40-pound snook on the line, passing his rod around pilings 12 times, and you're watching this go, and there's no way this dude is landing this fish, but he does. Amazing angler. Hughes, you're an American badass, and we do thank you for sending this, okay? And to everyone else, if you're dying to be this embarrassed on our podcast, please keep those shots coming to bent at com. You know, I got to say, Kevin's story, his, the life story of his that you you laid out there <laughs> kind of makes me think of the fairy tale, the ugly duckling. You remember that one? Of course I do. It's classic. Yeah. I feel like I feel like when I was a kid, I got the modern, like watered down version of mm-hmm. that original story because I was looking at, I was, I was looking this up, something to do with like getting my kid new books and the original by Hans Christian Andersen. And it's like so many other classic fairy tales. It's so much more brutal oh, than yeah. the stuff the kids get nowadays. Like it's oh, not yeah. a nice little fun story. No, totally, man. Like my daughter's really into the Little Mermaid, 
and I, I you know Disney the whole deal and I, I but I found out much to my surprise not long ago that was originally a Hans Christian Andersen tale I, I did not know that and in his book in order to walk on land she had to drink a potion that made her feel like she was constantly walking on knives oh I mean how terrible is that and then oh. after enduring all that pain um, the prince marries another gal and the little mermaid kills herself so they <laughs> left that out of the musical you know uh, and and we she didn't want to why. be part of that world, in, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Yeah, I mean, you look at that stuff, and and then we wonder why we're bitching about the fact that kids are softer nowadays than they were in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to derail us into talking about uh, gory fairy tales and sensitive children. I was really trying to set up a nice little segue there because for end of the line, Joe is going to tell us about some ugly ducklings whose entire purpose in life is to elicit violence. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. Tracing the history of any style of lore to its true origins is often pretty difficult. The first frog lures, as an example, were likely whittled in a backwoods cabin and crushing fish long before the world was introduced to the rubber snag-proof frog. In many cases, Allure's story starts when either the inventor or someone with more business savvy than the inventor begins mass production. And such is the case with the first duckling lore. I went down quite a rabbit hole trying to get a bead on the first duckling to hit tackle shop shelves. And to the best of my research, it was the Cree duck, spelled C-R-E-E-D-U-K. Multiple kind of reliable sources have its mass production starting in the 1950s. That mass production happened in the town of Oregon, Ohio. And the Cree duck was the brainchild of Mr. Bill Zabo. The Cree duck was made of molded plastic and looks exactly, precisely like a classic bathtub rubber ducky. The bait has a flat bottom, and it's through-wired with one big old honking treble hook dangling behind the ass region. On either side of that hook, two more wires create little duckling legs, each with a small silver spinner blade at the end. Cree ducks, at least per eBay, were available in classic black and yellow, black and white, and even white and cinnamon. Though Zabo was eventually bought out by a larger manufacturer, it seems as though the Cree duck was made through at least the 1970s. What's most interesting about it, however, is its origin, which I learned about from a single magazine ad I found online from the 1960s that appears to be written by Zabo himself. Across the top it reads, Indian Guide Tells All. Now you can use his secret to catch big fish. Having fished the Cree River system in northern Canada, I knew right away he was talking about the Cree Indians, hence the lore name. The ad says nobody could figure out how the Cree guides were managing to consistently catch stringers of massive pike. Which is silly, because I know for a fact the pike up there will swipe at a gym sock. Still, it goes on to say, It was only after I had become almost a blood brother to an Indian guide that I found out how. They were using a crudely carved and painted wooden duckling with hooks attached. Zabo even guaranteed success with your Cree duck in the ad and offered a full refund within 10 days if you weren't satisfied. I cannot help but wonder how many refunds he gave, because I have never been satisfied with the duckling lore. Not once, ever, and in my opinion, they fall squarely in the novelty category. Not only have I never caught a fish on one, I've never seen a live duckling get snatched in person. I want to see it. I think we all want to see it and love the idea of a pike or muskie or bass that sucks living fowl off the surface. And that's why I think duckling lures sold back in the day 
and continue to sell now. Though Duckling sort of faded away in the 80s and 90s, companies like Savage Gear recently resurrected them. If you fish and are on social media, strong chance you caught that fairly recent video of a kayak angler nailing a monster pike on a buzzing Savage Gear suicide duck. Search for ducklings getting eaten by fish on YouTube and you'll find plenty of clips. Nobody, including me, ever said it doesn't happen or never happens. In fact, I also know there are certain lakes in Canada that basically have a yearly duckling hatch, and the pike gobbled them up like Tic Tacs. But I call bullshit on the idea that a duckling is some sort of secret weapon everywhere. The way I look at them, if you throw it long enough, eventually something's going to clobber it. The massive Instagram attention you'd get from the shot might be worth it to some, but I have in the patience to throw a lure I have no confidence in for more than 20 minutes, and I will quickly opt for something I know the fish eat on a regular basis. My colleague and buddy, Sam Lundgren, Meat Eater's fishing editor, echoes my feelings. But then there was a musky trip he took with his dad on the Flambeau in 2018. Immediately after his old man caught his first ever muskie, he cut off the whopper plopper that it trashed and tied on one of them newfangled suicide ducks. Sam scoffed. And I get the impression he was mildly embarrassed in front of their guide. Few casts in, though, that duck got hammered by a 40-plus incher, which might not have gone over so well considering Sam was working really hard on that trip to get one on fly. And as Sam put it, my dad fished that damn lure for the next day and a half without so much as a passing glance. Did that fish really identify that as a duckling, or did it just make the right sound and get in front of a fish that was ready to kill? We'll never know, even though I think you know what I think. And Sam, I do hope your dad gleaned all the insta-love he could out of those photos. Well, that's all we have for you today. But if your New Year's resolution was to start scrapbooking like I know Joe's was, this week's page would include the worst use yet for fly reels, further proof that anglers are either illiterate, brilliant, or some combination of both, a Cinderella story of inspiration for all the pimply fat kids out there fondling their Zebcos, and possibly the best, <laughs> worst lure ever invented. Oh my God. Terrific. As always, send us a note and let us know what you're up to at bent at the We look forward to all your news ideas, bar nominations, sale bin items, awkward photos, love letters, and unmitigated hate mail. Yeah, we do. The, to be fair, most of those are for Lance V. Uh, no matter what you have to say, we will read it. And if you make us laugh, we'll be sure to send a degenerate angler sticker your way. Just be sure to send us your address too. That's right. We're also keeping an eye on the Degenerate Angler and Bent podcast hashtags if uh, you're into the whole gram thing. But remember, even if you're like Miles and hate social media, you're always welcome here. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. 
I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 